From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Catherine Campbell is away this month. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Mr. Ben and the Bens. Spoon, I don't think Catherine or I had any idea just how heavy some of these stories would get. But I think that's the thing that a lot of us forget about the kitchen. It's where most of the stuff happens in our household. I mean, think about it. Really think about it. Most of the meaningful conversations in your life, where did they happen? Sure, your parents may have sat you down in the living room to lecture you about something, but that usually wasn't the memorable moment. More often than not, it was the conversation in the kitchen a few hours later or the next day, dipping a chip in some salsa and finally feeling like you could open up to your mom now that the air had cleared. I think in reality, that's why we're drawn to create this show, where we ask people to tell us their stories about food, about their kitchens, about their dinner tables. Make no mistake, this is a food show. I've always believed that many of our greatest lessons in life come from what we learn to do in a frying pan. 
But I've also always said that the Dirty Spoon tells stories that aren't about what's on the table, but what's under it. And the more I work on this show, the more I see that those things aren't so far apart. That the chemistry of what happens in the frying pan is often quite similar to those conversations we had with our loved ones, elbows resting on the kitchen counter. Well, today we have three stories for you, pulled from the Dirty Spoon archives. Three of my favorite stories, actually. Don't worry, we'll be back next month with the start of season four, and I promise it will be a doozy. But for now, please sit back and enjoy some of my favorite stories from the kitchen, starting with this one, which might be my favorite story that we've ever had the chance to produce. From our first season in 2018, here's Brooke German reading Annalie Newton's Coming Apart. Nesbitt, Mississippi, 1990. It's Mother's Day. And dad is in the kitchen making eggs benedict for mom, who is still upstairs asleep in bed. The entire house smells like coffee and frying Canadian bacon. The sun is streaming through the windows and an early morning angle. And the dust from the carpeted stairs is revealed in the light, floating leisurely in all directions, as if gravity didn't exist. The breakfast smells draw my sister, Hillary, and me from our bedroom. Still in our pajamas, we each climb onto our bar stool around the kitchen island. It's an early Sunday morning in May, the best time to go out and look for spider webs, pearled with dew to pick apart with a stick. Also, the best time to pluck the wild purple violets on the hillside by the firewood stack and slowly tear the flowers apart into precise pieces. But this morning, Dad is cooking breakfast in the kitchen, and he's happy. He is whistling an ancient Confederate battle song, and his big hands are slicing a lemon in half. As his knife bites into the peel, bits of fragrant oil erupt into the steam from Dad's coffee. He pours the lemon juice into a saucepan and furiously whips the contents. Focused, intent, and bent over the stove to avoid hitting his towering head on the light in the middle of the kitchen. He stops. Do you want orange juice, girls? Dad asks. Hillary and I nod. Dad reaches into the refrigerator and grabs the orange juice. It's a reconstituted orange juice from a frozen can, and it's in a plastic pitcher. He also grabs a dark glass bottle. Dad pours two glasses of orange juice for us. Then he peels silver and gold from the mouth of the glass bottle and twists the top. A popping and fizzing, and Dad pours gold effervescent champagne into a cut wine glass. I watch the bubbles racing to the surface of the glass until they become obscured by condensation. Can I taste it, Dad? I ask. All right, just a little taste. The sparkling wine shoots up my nose before it's even in my mouth. I touch my lips to it and then hand the cup to Hillary. Even worse than coffee, I tell her. Dad is constructing Mom's breakfast onto a white ceramic plate. The two halves of an English muffin, side by side, a slice of Canadian bacon on each half, a poached egg over each slice of Canadian bacon, a spoonful of rich buttery yellow sauce over each egg, sliced canned mushrooms heated in the microwave sprinkled over the hollandaise sauce, canned asparagus on the side of the plate dressed in a more modest drizzle of sauce. All of the different ingredients from different pans and plates come together. And that, I ask, pointing at the fluffy butter-colored sauce. Can I try that? No way. I don't think you're going to like it, Annie. This is grown-up food, Dad says. Please? How do you know I won't like it? Well, I guess I don't know. Dad dips a teaspoon into the pot of hollandaise sauce, and the sauce clings to all sides of the spoon. Here you go. I lick the spoon. In the same way, the color can set a part of our dreams on fire and ensure that we remember in the morning, 
That first taste of hollandaise sauce lights this moment in my memory. Without the taste of hollandaise, this memory would ebb away and be lost in the flow of my days of living. Instead, this scene, this day, lasts inside of me and makes up a part of the landscape of myself. Do you like it? Hillary is asking. I'm not sure if I like it or not, but I nod. It is just so much more of a taste than the taste of my favorite childhood foods. Chicken and noodle soup, macaroni and cheese, pork chops. I hand Hillary the spoon. She shakes her head. What about flowers? Hillary says. We don't have any, Dad says. Hillary and I race outside in our bare feet to harvest violets. We also rip up a few handfuls of moss, some larger tiered purple bellflowers, and the tiniest little white and pink four-petal blossoms, even smaller than a pebble. We race back to the kitchen and place our blossoms around the white plate, the cup filled with black coffee, and the champagne glass. Dad picks up the tray. I don't know if this is going to work. Can you help me, girls? He hands the black coffee to Hillary and the champagne to me. Dad has muddied the champagne bubbles with orange juice. We each carry our cups in both hands, and we follow Dad to the stairs. Our staircase has 12 stairs of brown carpet. Ten of the stairs climb up the front side of the house like a spine to the second story, and two jut out from the wall. There is a square platform area under a window, between the second and third stairs. Hillary and I take every stair slowly, all of our attention on not spilling the liquid from our glasses. And then Dad opens the door. Happy Mother's Day, Dad says. Happy Mother's Day, Mom! Hillary and I say before we relinquish our cups into Mom's hands. Everyone is smiling. And then the memory goes dark, like a curtain dropping on the perfect, discreet scene. When Dad made hollandaise sauce, he was making an emulsion, an implausible mixture of two immiscible substances. He was mixing a polar liquid with a nonpolar liquid by adding lemon juice to melted butter. Polar and nonpolar liquids do not mix, they cannot mix. If you whisk water and oil together, it will seem as if the two substances have mixed. The water droplets will be suspended temporarily in the oil, and the mixture will seem uniform. After a few minutes, the water and the oil will separate again. The oil is hydrophobic and fears the water. The egg yolks that Dad whipped into the butter and lemon juice worked as an emulsifier, the missing link that allows the oil and water to mix. The egg yolks contain lecithin, a molecule that has a water-loving end, and a water-fearing end. The water-loving end of the egg yolks binds with the lemon juice, and the water-fearing end binds with the butter. And then you can just add a little bit of heat, and the two unmixable liquids become one. The oil and water come together, and they stay together. Nesbitt, Mississippi, 1995. We are waiting around a silent dinner table for Dad to come home. All of the food is ready. Mom has made steak and Vicky rice. Vicky rice is also made using a polar liquid and a non-polar liquid, but with no emulsifier. Earlier, Mom had put one cup of white rice, two cans of beef consomme, and one can of drained canned mushrooms into a casserole dish and baked it at 350 degrees until the rice absorbed all the consomme and is coated with the melted butter. This recipe is Dad's recipe, but Mom makes it even more than he does these days. This is the dish she brings to the church potluck every fourth Sunday. Dad doesn't go to church. Moving clockwise around the kitchen island, there is an empty stool with a dinner plate loaded down with food in front of it. Then Mom, sitting on her stool, staring at the front door. Then me, then Hillary, then Josh's empty seat. Our brother Josh is eight years older than Hillary and me. He's in high school, and he rarely eats dinner at our house anymore. 
He calls on the landline and tells mom that he's going to be eating dinner next door or at one of his baseball teammates' houses. It seems like he just goes from house to house on a kind of schedule. Once every month or so, he'll eat at home. But it's usually when dad's out of town on business. My dad is not Josh's dad. Hillary and I are looking down at our plates. It's summertime, and we are bigger. Now I can race up the stairs to my bedroom two at a time, and I'm constantly tripping over my lanky legs. The summer cacophony of crickets pours through the screen door. And every once in a while, a late lightning bug flashes on the porch. Headlights flare in through the front windows, and soon the heavy wood front door creaks open and slams shut. Dad's finally home from the golf course, but Mom isn't happy to see him. When Dad walks into the kitchen, I can smell the core's light and sweat. He walks to the refrigerator, grabs a beer, and then walks over to Mom. Hey, honey, Dad says, and bends over to kiss her on the cheek. But Mom turns away. We can eat now, girls, she says. Hillary and I pick up our forks. We still don't eat. Dad sits down in his place at the table. He loves steak. Well, what do we have here? This looks pretty good. Did you sear the sirloin at high heat first? What does it even matter? Everything's cold, Mom says. What do you mean, what does it matter? Of course it matters. It always matters, Dad says. No, apparently it doesn't matter. Being here, being home, with me, with your children, none of it matters to you. Why do I even bother to cook? I should have never cooked dinner. I should never have had children with you, Dad says. Mom is crying. She walks up the 12 stairs and slams her bedroom door shut. Dad drinks down the rest of his can of beer without coming up for air, smashes it in his hands, and walks out the front door. Hillary and I are alone at the table. We start eating the cold Vicky rice and feeding pieces of the gristle to our dog, Trixie, under the table. There is no one left to see us and scold us. Eggs are a difficult ingredient to work with. I have this on good authority from Josh, my brother, who grew up to become a chef, and Julia Child, my father's favorite cook. According to Josh, the two most difficult ingredients to master are eggs and potatoes. If you can learn to exploit all the different manifestations of the protein in eggs and the starches in potatoes, you are on your way to becoming a classically trained French chef. Julia Child agrees. In her book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, she writes, We feel it is of great importance that you learn how to make hollandaise by hand. For part of every good cook's general knowledge is a thorough familiarity with the vagaries of egg yolks under all conditions. To make hollandaise sauce, there must be heat, but there mustn't be too much heat. When Dad taught me how to make hollandaise sauce, he always monitored the process. He would fiddle with the heat, tell me to take the pot off the burner, add more lemon juice, small things that didn't seem to matter until I was alone in the kitchen trying to make my own holiday sauce and failing. When the holiday sauce is exposed to too much heat, it curdles. It breaks apart into pieces with different composition. The sauce separates. There's only a tiny window after emulsification and before curdling when the sauce can come together as a homogenous mixture. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, 2007. I am in college, and I'm making Eggs Benedict for my birthday brunch. It's just me and a boy that I love in our downtown loft apartment. The mushrooms, fresh this time, are sliced and sautéed in butter. The asparagus is gently browning into crisp nuttiness in the oven. The eggs are poached, the lemons are squeezed, the butter is clarified, 
and I am whipping the contents of the saucepan like a madwoman. The moment of emulsification never seems to come. One minute, the butter and the eggs are separate. The next minute, they are curdled. That moment of becoming one cohesive, unified sauce doesn't ever happen. I turn off the stove. I look down at the pot. The knobby contents seem to congeal and cloud over even more as the heat leaves. The boy comes over to look into the pot. Is that what it's supposed to look like? He asks. I shake my head. Not even close. Well, baby, let's just go out to eat. I'll buy you breakfast somewhere. I shake my head again. You know, I, I think I just need a minute. I pick up my glass of champagne and the rest of the bottle and take it out into the concrete courtyard. I bask under the late August sun and feel it radiating onto me from every direction. The noon train to New Orleans shrieks by, the cars clanging together as it comes to a stop at the depot down the road. Three months later, I find my own apartment and move out. The boy that I love becomes the boy that I loved, and we separate. I took a cooking class in college, and one day my cooking teacher told me to burn the roux, a flour and butter mixture that can become the basis for milk gravy or gumbo. Excuse me, I said. You want me to destroy this? I sure do, she said. But why? I asked. It's the only way you'll be able to understand all the stages. The peanut butter stage, the chocolate stage, and the burned trash stage. You need to be able to see the progression of the effects of heat on the roux before you can master it. I've never ruined any food on purpose before. Only by mistake. There are no mistakes in the kitchen, Annie. Only learning experiences. Livingston, Texas, 2010. It's Christmas, and I'm helping Dad cook hollandaise sauce for the Christmas dinner. He and Mom are both divorced and remarried to new people. Dad changes up his Christmas menu every year. Sometimes it'll be a German Christmas dinner, sometimes Italian. This year, it's steak and asparagus with hollandaise sauce. He is outside grilling enough steaks for 12 people, and I'm inside making the hollandaise sauce. I am being very, very careful. I'm hoping that I've learned from my past mistakes. The heat is on low, and I am violently whipping the contents of the saucepan. I whip and whip and whip, and nothing is happening. Nothing happening is better than curdling, but I am still just staring down at a pot of raw egg yolks and butter. After a quarter of an hour or so, I take the pot completely off the heat and ask Dad for help. He looks down into the pot, cranks up the heat to medium, and puts the pot right down on the burner. Wait, isn't it going to curdle? That has to be too much heat. He shrugged. We'll see. The mixture began to puff up and lighten in color. After it had almost doubled in size, Dad turned off the burner and moved the saucepan to a pot holder. The hollandaise was emulsified. To analyze is to break down a thing or an idea into smaller parts in order to try to come to a deeper understanding. Like when I was a little girl, tearing apart the violets by the fire stack. I didn't just rip them into shreds. It wasn't an act of destruction. I slowly plucked off each flower and leaf until the structure was naked. Then I used my thumbnail to slice open the little package filled with clear particles of living sand granules. I tore apart the violet to understand how it worked. But did I really learn how the flower worked? What do I understand about a flower now that I know what the insides look like? What if I didn't learn anything at all from burning the rue? And I just keep tearing apart flowers and burning rue forever? 
Surely growth isn't something that we just get by a virtue of being alive. Analysis is easy. Tearing something apart is as natural as breathing. It's the bringing separate things together that is hard, maybe impossible. Synthesis is the problem of life, or maybe it's just my problem. Houston, Texas, 2013. Here I am with another boy that I love, making him eggs Benedict again. This time, I'm making it for his birthday brunch in the kitchen he shares with his two roommates. He has never eaten eggs Benedict before. You have to understand, it might not turn out. I've ruined more holiday sauces than I've cooked successfully. I'll help you, says the boy. Let's give it a try. So he's in the kitchen beside me, snapping the wooden ends off the asparagus and slicing mushrooms. I tell him all about eggs and coagulation and emulsification, and he fills up my champagne glass. I clarify the butter and start to think, what does it matter if it curdles? So what if it doesn't work out? We are here, at this moment, cooking together, drinking together. I start to add the hot clarified butter to the lemon juice and egg yolk in a saucepan, and the boy that I love stirs. Slowly, I trickle in the butter and put the saucepan on low heat. I watch as the color starts to lighten and the mixture puffs up. I turn off the heat and place a teaspoon in the sauce. The sauce clings to all sides of the teaspoon. It's perfect. Wait, wait, just wait a minute, I say to the boy. What? Are you afraid I won't like it? He asks me. No, I'm afraid you will like it, and you'll love me forever even if you shouldn't. He looks up at me. I'll risk it, says the boy. I hand him the spoon. Can. Watching you lower both your eyes 
I don't know about you, but for me, and a lot of people working in the food world, the kitchen is often our greatest teacher. It's a place where we can test ourselves, try out new things, learn new skills, work towards new goals. It's often a safe place where we can make messes and, in turn, figure out how to clean them up. For Utah's Andy Winder, the kitchen went even deeper. After beginning his transition to male in college, the kitchen became his place to dig into the very concept of masculinity and what it means to be a man. I've finally reached the boring adult milestone, where the happiest part of this month was buying myself a blender. That's not to say I've had a rough time lately. The idea of making caffeinated smoothies for breakfast thrills me, and the strawberry basil smoothie I made this weekend can attest to that enthusiasm. It reminds me of how far I've come as an amateur cook. When I started learning to cook for myself, I attended a university that, at the time, banned the sale of caffeine on campus. Until 2017, Brigham Young University didn't even stock their vending machines with Diet Coke. You had to buy the weird, produced specifically for Mormons, caffeine-free Diet Coke, and at that stage, what's the point? The cafeteria wasn't much better, especially for a shy sophomore who found the crowds overwhelming. I didn't always fit in at BYU, and not in the loner, no-one-gets-me kind of way. I wanted to belong, but my social anxiety often persuaded me that I didn't. And on top of all that, I'd just begun taking testosterone injections so I could transition to male. We have a term for the first few years after someone starts hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, in the trans community. Second puberty. As you can guess from the name, it's an awkward time. Your body's changing, your mood is swinging, and once again you're trying to answer the question, who am I and what does it mean to be me? I grew up in a family of four sisters, so I didn't have a sibling I could ask about what it meant to be a man, but I did have my dad. In many ways, my dad mirrors what you'd traditionally think of when you hear the word masculine. He's devoted to the Utah Jazz and BYU football teams, even when they have bad seasons or years or decades. He runs his own business out of his warehouse and taught me that sometimes tough work, physically and emotionally, is necessary to take care of those you love. He loves alternative rock and hates sensitive artists like Hozier or Sam Smith with a passion that I don't fully understand. But he loves to cook. As long as I can remember, He's been the parent who makes family dinners on Sunday breakfast, not because my mom can't, but because he truly enjoys it. For my dad, cooking is how he shows his affection, and he's genuinely offended if we refuse something that he made. I never had to put up with Eggo waffles or Raisin Bran growing up, because for breakfast, dad would make blueberry pancakes with homemade syrup or egg in a holes with dill and avocado. Sundays were cinnamon roll Sundays and we'd return from church to enjoy cinnamon rolls that Dad had made from scratch in our bread maker. But the best food he ever made was his authentic German dinners. In the early 90s, shortly after the Berlin Wall fell, which he had a piece of, my dad spent several years in Dresden. Even though he returned to the United States, he never lost his passion for German cuisine. He made us everything from Spätzle to goulash, to breaded schnitzel, and rotkohl, and all of it was delicious. My mom likes to brag to others that in her house, she can leave the cooking to her husband. When I was a kid, I remember some of her friends thought it was odd or even funny. 
My mom has never cared about gender stereotypes when it comes to chores. She makes a point of mowing the lawn every weekend before my dad can stop her because it makes her feel empowered. In a simple way, my dad showed me that being a man or a woman or a person in general is more than adhering to social traditions. Our humanity is much deeper than that, and I think it's the same with gender identity. My dad cooks for us because it's his way of caring and providing for his family. When my dad first began his business, this wasn't always easy. Some months, we couldn't afford to keep the heating on and had to boil water for our baths, but he made sure that his children were fed no matter what. Whatever masculinity really involves, I can't think of anything more important than loving others in the best way you can. So I guess it was fitting that I started to cook around when I chose to transition. Inadvertently, it reminded me that the overlap between being a man and being a good person is nearly complete. One of the first dishes I learned to make for myself was Rotkohl, a German side dish made from red cabbage, vinegar, sugar, and bacon. I could have chosen a more practical recipe, but as strange as it sounds, Rotkohl is one of my comfort foods. It reminds me of home. When I cooked it for the first time, my roommate peered into the pot, scrunched up her nose, and said, why is it purple? I don't think food's supposed to be purple. I never gave her a satisfactory answer to that question, nor did I convince her to try it. But while it turned out a little too sour the first few times, I still felt proud of myself. With hours of experimentation in the kitchen involving the only guinea pigs I could convince to eat my food, my partner Mac and myself, I've developed a knack for a few dishes. Mac loves my beef stew, and I'm particularly confident in my quesadilla making abilities. Sometimes, if my introverted self is in the right mood, I even invite people over for meals. When I moved into my first apartment outside of campus housing earlier in the year, I invited some friends over for brunch. These friends were fellow trans students from my time at BYU. Some of us transitioned while we were students, some of us waited until after we graduated, and some are still deciding what's best for their situations. Without these friends, I don't think I could have made it through my college years. Transitioning at a conservative Mormon university was hard, but having friends who empathized and lifted each other up made the difficulties worthwhile. I'm an avid cook, but definitely not a gourmet one, so I just stuck with making waffles for them. But even though the menu was simple, I thought about my family's breakfast growing up and smiled. I guess that's just what Winder men do. Cook for their family. That was Story reading Andy Winder's Next Course from 2019. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving its farm-fresh foods with socially distanced tables, outdoor seating, takeout, and adherence to all COVID guidelines. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information about our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
try to be on my side now Everyone is backing out Though I know you love a crowd I could really use you around Try to be on my side Our relationship with food is just that, a relationship, something that goes deeper than surface level and affects us to our core. And like so many of the relationships in our lives, that can often be a reflection of our relationships with our families. I think if anything, the stories on this show so far have shown us just that. The impact that our families have on us often shows up in our behavior in the kitchen. I don't think there's any story that displays that more clearly than the stark and stunning piece written for us in 2018 by the author Piper J. Daniels. Here's Jessie Shires reading her piece, Return of Hunger. I can only say in the dark how one spring I crushed a monarch mid-flight just to know how it felt to have something change in my hands. Ocean Vuong. Disordered eating was as much a part of my upbringing as arithmetic or prayer. Each bland dinner began with the blood and the body of Christ. Every night, my mother served us the same meal, steamed chicken and vegetables, which were carefully weighed on a small white scale in order to track portion size and caloric intake with precision. Upon the kitchen counter was a cookie jar in the shape of a cow that mooed when you opened the lid. Only very rarely did it contain cookies. It was meant to be a lesson. It was meant to be a trap. Memories of mealtime are so vivid 
that even in my adult life, it is difficult to separate present from past, as though eating could only exist inside the same shameful moment. A girl is given a mantra, which is like a prayer. A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. Nothing tastes as good as being thin feels. A girl is given a diet, and as trends change, another and another. Alkaline, Atkins, baby food, blood type, cabbage soup, master cleanse, Mediterranean, Paleolithic, Slimfast, South Beach, Weight Watchers, Zone. A girl is given aid, Adderall, Dexatrim, Hydroxycut, Metabolife. A girl is given the opportunity to push herself. The Ipecac diet, the finger down your throat diet, the swallowing of saturated cotton balls diet, the laxative diet, the cigarette diet, even the breatharian diet, in which nourishment is derived solely from sunlight and air. If it is as Plath ventures that dying is an art, then disordered eating is the central artistic medium in which girls are instructed and supported. As women, we pass this curse from generation to generation, enforcing the very practices that made us ill and held us down. For over a decade prior to her first pregnancy, my mother controlled her figure and her hunger by chewing sugar-free cinnamon gum and eating exactly seven saltine crackers a day. Pregnancy must have felt to my mother like being violently possessed. She tells stories about blacking out and coming to in the McDonald's parking lot, the flavor of burgers and apple pies on her tongue. She had nightmares that we were born so small and starving, we disappeared in the sheets. When it was time to be born, my mother's hips proved too small, so my sister and me were ripped from her body like bad spirits in a seance gone wrong. My mother did her best to make healthy choices while I was in utero, but I know plenty of women with mothers who refused to eat for two. Their daughter's first diet begun in the womb, where they grew from a cradle of bone. The great love of my childhood was my grandmother, the well-meaning right-wing matriarch who firmly believed that beauty was a woman's greatest power. She took me to the Kmart Superstore every Friday so I could select another doll to inhabit my Barbie universe. By age six, I had everything a little girl could dream of. Dozens of Barbies, three Corvettes and a safari jeep, a spa, an ice cream store, and a cul-de-sac of dream houses. An embarrassment of riches, but for one thing. I f hated Barbie. Barbie's sexuality was confusing to me. Why the irremovable underpants? Why large breasts but no vagina? What did that say about vaginas? About breasts. And why? I wondered, did my friends make their Barbies and Kens scissor? Why did my babysitter enjoy making Ken talk dirty to me? Whenever we treat women's bodies as aesthetic objects without function, we deform them. Jermaine Greer. In their interactive multimedia collaboration entitled Doll Games, Artists Shelley and Pamela Jackson described the eroticism of their dolls, claiming they knew the dolls' bodies better than their own. The Jacksons speak of their Barbies' private lives as perfect. I identified with their hard, dumb inexpressiveness, Shelley Jackson writes. It was how I felt, too. My real life did not show on the outside. The dolls clacked together, their bodies all beak, all shell. Despite this, everything about them was erotic. The Jacksons say of their dolls, their secrets were ours. 
In her doll-hating opus, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison writes, Adults, older girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs, all the world agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl-child treasured. When the novel's Claudia is gifted such a doll for Christmas, it is with this breathless incantation. This is beautiful, and if you are on this day worthy, you may have it. What was I supposed to do with it? Claudia wonders. Pretend to be its mother? Eventually, Claudia rips that blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll to pieces. In his 1987 film, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, Todd Haynes uses mute Barbie dolls and title cards to reenact the final 17 years of Karen Carpenter's life before her death from anorexia-related causes in February of 1983. The first title card reads, The self-imposed regime of the anorexic reveals a complex internal apparatus of resistance and control. Her intensive need for self-discipline consumes and replaces all her other needs and desires. Anorexia, thus, can be seen as an addiction and abuse of self-control, a fascism over the body in which the sufferer plays the parts of both dictator and the emaciated victim who she so often resembles. To those who would argue that anorexia is about emulating the slim figures of movie stars or desperately attempting to become conventionally beautiful, Haynes counters... In a culture that continues to control women through the commoditization of their bodies, the anorexic body excludes itself, rejecting the doctrines of femininity, driven by a vision of complete mastery and control. To reflect Carpenter's bodily deterioration, Haynes slims the Karen doll gradually with a knife. No part of me believed the Barbies were beautiful. Every time I held them, it was an interrogation of their shallow superiority, their embodiment of the feminine mystique. I felt they had to answer for the damaging ideals their bodies engendered. I considered them monsters who deserved to be maimed. It might be said that the hatred of something as feminine as Barbie is not in keeping with the spirit of feminism, but then I reasoned. These Barbies were not women. They were weekly reminders of a certain plastic perfection my chubby, queer, nerdy self would never attain. Dolls work like possession. The little girl's demon occupies the helpless vessel of the doll, writes Shelley Jackson. But for the life of me, I could never find a way in. One afternoon... Pushed to my breaking point by a lunchroom bully who chanted, Miss Piggy, every time I ate, my sister and I declared war on our whole Barbie universe. She designed an amazing Chinese water torture chamber. I made bombs from thumbtacks, pop rocks, and tea lights, and left them in the elevator of every dream house. When at last we deemed their torture sufficient, We cut the dolls in pieces with pruning shears, dumped their parts in a fish tank at the end of my bed, and, because we were benevolent dictators, spent the rest of the week composing elegies. We turned skeletons into goddesses and looked to them as if they might teach us how not to need. Maria Hornbacher. In my early 20s, I subsisted on a diet of apples green and whiskey's neat. Though I denied it at the time, thinness was the most important thing to me. 
I was seeing five different women then, all of them sexy and thin, and my anorectic mindset masqueraded as a mode of control. If I could live on 300 calories, I reasoned, I'd remain beautiful enough to keep each of them in my bed. My refrigerator was barren, my cupboards aching with emptiness. Keep going, the hot bartender told me. You're almost perfect. Then I met Jay, who hated thinness, who railed against the diet industry and eating disorders and girls with skinny asses. She would not accept my anorexia. She force-fed me healthy foods, spinach, sesame tofu, and compared to the other girls, her love for me felt positively nourishing. She wanted a curvy girl. It's an ass, hourglass body, is what she said. Yet, upon her living room wall was a framed poster of pinup Betty Page in a size small leather bikini. What was sexy about her, I wondered, to someone like Jay? Were I reduced to my skeleton, I would never be as thin as the pinup of her dreams. The truth about anorexia is that even when the behavior is dormant, the mind lies in wait for any excuse to resume. I took the poster as permission to continue starving myself. When we moved in together, she hung Betty on our bedroom wall. For the next six years, two cities, three apartments, Betty presided over us as we fought, f***ed, and slept. The fear that nothing survives. The greater fear that something does. Richard Sykin. There have been times in my life when I was subjected to serious violence. In the aftermath, it was as though my muscles never made memory to begin with. My body forgot how to be a body, refusing the usual body things, f***ing, dancing, bathing, touching, and being touched. After the violence, I was horrified by the time I'd wasted obsessing over my body's thinness, its sexiness, how badly I treated my body back when it was relatively unscathed. Rather than grow thinner, more delicate, I ate endlessly in bed, gaining over 30 pounds in a few months' time. My mother spoke a lot back then about how gaining weight, how aging, renders the female body invisible. It was all I wanted, to blend into the ether and disappear. When you're fat, no one will pay attention to disordered eating, or they will look the other way, or they will look right through you. You get to hide in plain sight. I have hidden in plain sight in one way or another for most of my life. Willing myself to not do that anymore, willing myself to be seen, is difficult. Roxanne Gay. Often, what got me through the week was the idea of never being seen again. I left my house exactly once a day, driving the long, curving road that led to Karkeek Park. Wandering beneath the watery sun, I scouted locations. Here, I'd say to myself, just beyond the tide pools, where no child would find me. Here, just before the orchard alongside the salmon run. Every day, new coordinates for the same shallow grave. Every day, a new plan for disappearing. It was the lowest point of my life, but it didn't last forever. The evidence of a successful miracle 
is the return of hunger. Fanny Howe. After the emergence of multiple studies that linked Barbie's impossibly unrealistic body to an unhealthy body image in young girls, Mattel Inc. finally announced a campaign to manufacture Barbies that represent real women. Mattel Inc. would have us believe that they've invested in diversity and body positivity, but is that true? Can an organization that has knowingly compromised the body image of young girls have anyone's interests at heart but the shareholders and executives? One look at the new real Barbie, size 10, tops, tells me she is every bit as revolutionary as the new and improved man bun sporting Ken. The real solution for girls is one that would put Mattel Inc. out of business. F*** Barbie. Teach a girl to code. I used to believe that there was a catharsis in destroying Barbie dolls, that it was a healthy way to reject the patriarchy. I see now that through such catharsis, the blame is merely redirected at women. In this case, women who embody the Barbie-esque. Why should any form of beauty be subject to destruction? A culture fixated on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience. Naomi Wolf. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that women are by nature aggressive, competitive, and catty with one another. It is a myth that shifts insidiously from generation to generation. Every time women choose to invest in this myth, the joke is 100% on us. We need to stop making ourselves so thin that we slip through the cracks of history. We need to stop starving our spirits and intellects long enough to find a way out. Queer women, while not immune to patriarchy or the male gaze, are slightly less entangled in it. We have more freedom to author and reject standards of beauty, and we're well-versed in forming communities in which we depend upon one another. Because of this good fortune, it seems we have a greater responsibility to light the way. As I continue to seek wisdom about my body and the bodies of others, this is what I know to be true. The revolution begins, the true level is revealed, the moment women consent to forgive one another. Every time you set eyes upon a woman, look for the thing that is strong and beautiful. If a woman criticizes your body, disarm her with the sweetest, truest compliment you can muster. If you feel driven to criticize a woman's body, know that that thought was planted in you. Break free of it and feel love for her body instead. Most of all, be hungry. Jesse Shires, reading Piper J. Daniels' Return of Hunger. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Mr. Ben and the Bens, Arlo Parks, Second Grade, Bjork, Artie Shaw, John Bryan, Tyler Ramsey, Goldman, Shinjun Hyung, Villages, Clint Manzel, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, Sylvan Chaveau, Brian McBride, Wolchik Goldschuski, Marco Beltrami, Atlio Varson, and Brian Eno. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and I write some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. 